This week's scripture and sermon discuss mature themes, including sexual content, assault, and violence, which may be difficult topics for some listeners. Uh, welcome to Christ City Church. My name is Lisa Rodriguez Watson. I am the Associate Pastor of Equipping and Discipleship here at Christ City Church. All right, folks, this Sunday, as you have heard, marks the very first Sunday of Advent and the start of a new sermon series at Christ City Church. This Advent, we'll be exploring the four women mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, as listed in Matthew's Gospel, as well as Mary, the mother of Jesus. Today, we're going to learn about Tamar. Uh, she is the first woman listed in the genealogy of Jesus. Maybe I should have had my paper clip off to begin with. There we are. Um, so, take a nice deep breath. This, um, this is a story for the <laughs> not faint of heart. Um, and as you do that, I would invite you to stand as we reverence the reading of God's word. The two verses that we're going to, the two passages that we're going to hear from this morning are Matthew 1 and Genesis 38. Starting in Matthew 1, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Genesis 38, 6 through 30. Judah got a wife for Er, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Er, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, Sleep with your brother's wife and fulfill your duty to her as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the child would not be his, so whenever he slept with his brother's wife, he spilled his semen on the ground to keep from providing offspring for his brother. What he did was wicked in the Lord's sight, so the Lord put him to death also. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, Live as a widow in your father's household until my son Shelah grows up, for he thought he may die too, just like his brother's. So Tamar went to live in his father's household. After a long time, Judah's wife, the daughter of Shua, died. When Judah had recovered from his grief, he went up to Timnah to the men who were shearing his sheep, and his friend Hira the Adulamite went with him. When Tamar was told, your father-in-law is on his way to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's clothes, covered herself with a veil to disguise herself, and then sat down at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. When Judah saw her, he thought that she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. Not realizing that she was his daughter-in-law, he went over to her by the roadside and said, Come now, let me sleep with you. And what will you give me to sleep with you, she asked. I'll send you a young goat from my flock, he said. Will you give me something as a pledge until you send it, she asked. He said, what pledge should I give you? Your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. 
After she left, she took off her veil and put her widow's clothes on again. Meanwhile, Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite in order to get his pledge back from the woman, but he did not find her. He asked the men who lived there, where is the shrine prostitute who was beside the road at Enaim? There hasn't been any shrine prostitute here, they said. So he went back to Judah and said, I didn't find her. Besides, the men who lived there said there hasn't been any shrine prostitute here. Then Judah said, let her keep what she has or she will become a laughingstock. After all, I did send her this young goat, but you didn't find her. About three months later, Judah was told, your daughter-in-law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution and has now become pregnant. Judah said, bring her out and have her burned to death. As she was being brought out, she sent a message to her father-in-law. I am pregnant by the man who owns these, she said. And she added, see if you recognize whose seal and cord and staff these are. Judah recognized them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I wouldn't give her to my own son, Shelah. And he did not sleep with her again. When the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. As she was giving birth, one of them put out his hand. So the midwife took a scarlet thread and tied it on his wrist and said, this one came out first. But when he drew back his hand, his brother came out and she said, so this is how you have broken out. And he was named Perez. Then his brother who had the scarlet thread on his wrist came out and he was named Zerah. This is the word of the Lord. Would you pray with me as Matthew comes to bring the message for the morning? God, thank you for, uh, for your righteousness and for your justice and for the way things can be made right in the world. Thank you for Matthew who is bringing the word this morning. We ask that you would give us, help us to have attentive hearts, attentive minds. God, help us to set aside the things that distract us right now, the things that busy our minds. Help us to hear from you by the power of your Holy Spirit this morning. As we step into Advent, we long, we long to, to feel your presence. And for those of us who are still waiting to long for that feeling, come and meet us where we are. We love you, God, and we are thankful for you. We ask your blessing on us this morning through this message about Tamar. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, good, good morning, Christ City Church. Um, it's, uh, it's good to be here um, with you. I'm excited to be here with you this morning. I do hope that, um, that you had a tremendous Thanksgiving. I, I hope that you're surrounded by people that, that care about you and that love you and that you care about and that you love. I hope that you had a a full plate and a full belly, and I hope that you, more than any of that, I hope that you were able to carve out some time to just simply reflect on the things for which you're thankful and the things for which you're grateful. Um, God has uh, been good to um, all of us. Uh, there have been hard times, painful times, times of grief and mourning and lament. Some of those times are still um, in the front view rather than the rear view, yet even in the middle of it all, we're still able to say that there are things for which we're thankful to God for. And so 
uh, we are able to say uh, that God has cared for us as we prayed um, as a staff earlier this week. We're able to say that God has cared for us in the wilderness and in the land of drought, that even in those places, uh, that God is good. His love endures forever. It can be our testimony that God satisfies the thirsty, that he, that he fills the hungry with good things, that uh, it can be our story that God has filled our mouths with laughter and with songs of joy because God has done great things. And so there's much for us to be thankful. So I do hope that even over the last few days that as we've celebrated and rested that you've had a moment to reflect over the things for which you're thankful. I'm thankful for all of you. Um, as uh, Sarah mentioned in the, uh, in the Kid City lesson, um, today marks the beginning of the Advent season. Advent, as she mentioned, is the time in the Christian calendar. It's leading up to Christmas, to Christ's Mass, the celebration uh, that takes place around the world that celebrates Jesus' birth. Advent, like, like a lot of words in the Christian calendar, it comes from a, it's a, a transliteration of a Latin word. In this case, the word is Adventus in Latin, and it just simply means coming or arrival. Um, and in non-religious settings, it could just mean like the advent of spring or the advent of a new monarchy. It can uh, mean the arrival of something that has been longed for, something anticipated, or something that has been waited for has finally arrived. For Christians, um, Advent is a season in which we look back at the first advent and we look back uh, at the first coming and we anticipate forwards the second advent, the the. the season when Jesus returns to finally and faithfully and fully complete all that was inaugurated in that first Advent. And Advent, it gives us a moment, a season to consider what it means for us to live as an Advent people. How do we live as a people in anticipation of the second arrival? And what does it mean for us to be faithful in this in-between meantime that we call now? This year, one of the ways that we wanted to celebrate Advent, one of the ways that we wanted to reflect on Advent this season on, uh, was through looking at the women that were mentioned in Jesus' genealogy in uh, the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 1, it opens with a, a listing of Jesus' genealogy, and in that genealogy, there's four women that are named, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba. We've also added Mary, the mother of Jesus, as the final woman in Jesus' genealogy, though she's not mentioned in Matthew chapter 1. She's mentioned in subsequent chapters, obviously. And the reason that we wanted to focus on these women this Advent is because they, they each provide us with a unique window into God's campaign towards redemption that was fulfilled in Jesus. God is saying something to us about the work that God is doing uh, towards salvation that is exemplified in each one of these women's stories. And while each of these women's stories is unique, there are some common threads in each of them that need to be mentioned at the outset. First, each of these stories is set in a context that's just deeply patriarchal. The setting of these 4,000-year-old stories is one in which men have near-ultimate power socially and culturally and politically and economically and a society in which women are viewed by and large as property of men. And as we look at these stories over the coming weeks, we're going to have to wrestle honestly and intellectually with the distance that our culture as 21st century Americans is from the biblical text. And as we do that, we're going to see how countercultural the story of God actually is in each of these stories. 
As theologian and author Carolyn Custis James states in her book Maelstrom, patriarchy is not the Bible's message. Rather, it is the fallen cultural backdrop that sets off in the strongest re- relief the radical nature and potency of the Bible's countercultural message. Second thing to say by way of over, overview is that the women of Advent, they are all, each one of them are outsiders. They are all outcasts, either by ethnicity or by circumstance. The women of Advent, they're marginalized women. They're being taken advantage of by the powerful. They're being denied justice. They are being oppressed. And yet in each case, they embody justice. They embody redemption. They embody healing and restoration and ultimately salvation Yet, let's not get there too quickly. Their stories are uncomfortable, and they're painful, and they're shameful. Not not in the shameful sense that Brene Brown talks about, where shame is a reflection of who one believes themselves to be, but shameful in the sense that shameful acts are done to them. Actions that are repulsive and abusive. Acts of sexual assault and violation, these are stories that families often hide and ignore or speak not of, but the Bible speaks of them yet. The God of all justice, of all righteousness, of all healing and peace, God lifts them up. He tells their story and gives these women a place of honor. And not just like one-time honor and like some obscure Bible verse that you read once and never hear again, but actually they are lifted up over and over and over in genealogies. You see, in Jewish traditions, genealogies, they didn't include women. They only included fathers and sons. We see this cultural custom played out in Luke's articulation of the genealogy. But again, the patriarchy of the day, lineage is passed down through a male line. And yet, in the Gospel of Matthew, he interrupts this pattern by including four women whose stories carry echoes of Jesus' birth and echoes of Jesus' mission. Before we turn specifically to Tamar's story, it's going to be helpful for us to locate this story in the broader narrative of Genesis. You see, what the first half of Genesis is about is just about the story of the fall. It's just about the unraveling of humanity and the relationship that humanity has with God. It's the story of humanity's break with God and the mess the people have made of things and the deterioration of the good that God had created. And yet there comes this transition around 10, 11, 12, uh, chapter 10, 11, 12 in Genesis where God begins to answer this this bubbling, simmering question of how is God going to rescue humanity? How is is humanity going to be rescued from this worsening cycle of sin and brokenness? And God's answer is that he is going to bring about rescue through a particular family and through a particular people. And the reason that God gives for rescuing in this particular fashion is so that all the people of the earth could be blessed. Though he was going through a particular, his aim was always global in scope. And this is where Genesis introduces this family that God will use to launch his rescue mission. And it's where we learn about Abraham in Genesis 12 and his son Isaac in Genesis 21 and his son Jacob in Genesis 25. And the story progresses and we learn of Jacob's 12 sons that will become the 12 tribes of Israel in Genesis 35. But the problem in each instance, 
Abraham's instance, Isaac, Jacob's, Jacob's sons, in each of the instances, in each turn of the story, this family, they continue to fail at holding to the promises and to the covenants that they have made with God. And each failure brings concern that God's plan of redemption is going to be put in jeopardy. And yet, at each turn, we see God breaking through. God is faithful where humanity is not. God works through tragic and terrible circumstances, and God works through dreadful and appalling people to bring about beauty and healing. Genesis 37 begins one of these stories in these cycles, and it's the story of Joseph, one of Jacob's sons, his favorite son. Jacob participates in favoritism. Joseph is sold into slavery by his brothers, chiefly by his older brother, Judah. He's then trafficked to Egypt, and he's imprisoned for a number of years, only to emerge later to become second in command of all of Pharaoh's uh, empire. And from that position of power, Joseph is able to save his family, he's able to save his people, and move forward God's redemptive plan. But in the middle of this Joseph story, in the middle of this dysfunctional family narrative, is the story of Tamar. And it almost seems like a discursive story, like a rabbit kind of traily tangent rambling story but in actuality Tamar's story is is a central piece of God's story of God's faithfulness and his redemptive plan Tamar is introduced in Genesis 38 verse 6 at Lisa read Judah got a wife for Ur his firstborn and her name was Tamar and then over the course of the next five verses from 6 to 11 verses 6 to 11 Tamar is married twice, both times an arranged marriage, neither of them her choosing. She's widowed twice. She's repeatedly taken advantage of sexually, and then she's abandoned by her in-laws. Merry Christmas. Welcome to Advent. Glad you're here. Over and over, this young woman experiences trauma upon trauma, pain upon pain. Tamar is introduced and is immediately identified as an outsider, though though the text doesn't explicitly say this. Context and tradition holds that Tamar is a Canaanite. She isn't Jewish. She's a foreigner. She is from the people that Israel has held in low regard. Canaanites and Hebrews, they were hostile towards each other, and they worked hard to avoid each other. Yet this is the woman that Judah, himself married to a Canaanite woman, arranged for his firstborn son, Ur, to marry. Pretty, pretty quickly, the story takes a nosedive, moves into just really kind of strange ancient customs. Ur dies, leaving Tamar a childless widow. Now, the custom of the day held that if a woman is widowed and she has no children, then the surviving brother of the deceased man's widow are honor-bound to marry her and to produce the missing male heir who would assume the vacant spot in the family tree. In compliance with this practice, Judah passes Tamar to Ur's brother, his second son, Onan, with the mandate that Onan fulfill uh, the duty of his brother and give Tamar a child. This practice was called the Levite Law, and it was established by Moses. It was established in order to protect widows, but also it was practiced by other cultures in the ancient Near East. You see, widows in this, in this time, in this ancient and in intensely patriarchal world were incredibly vulnerable, vulnerable socially and economically. 
Without a husband or male children, widows were vulnerable to the whims of opportunistic men looking to take the most brutal advantage of women. Widows lived at the edge of destitution and financial ruin. And this is precisely why the scriptures continually call the people of God to care for the widows in their distress. Care of widows was to be one of the marks of the people of God. And yet in this story, this family of God that God intended to use to bring about healing to all people, this story shows the failure of that family to display the marks of godliness that God demanded. Not only were they not caring for the widow to Tamar, they were oppressing her and they were taking uh, uh, all manner of advantage of her. Odin is a wicked man, and instead of impregnating Tamar, he, as was his obligation, he was simply using Tamar for his own sexual gratification. He repeatedly has sex with Tamar, but he pulls out in order to prevent uh, uh, conception. In short, Odin marries Tamar, but withholds honor from her, and instead abuses her repeatedly. The reason Odin does this is because he knows that if Tamar becomes pregnant, then by the customs of the day, that son, that child will be considered his older brother's child, the firstborn heir of the family. And such, the child would be in line to receive the lion's share of the inheritance from Judah. However, if there's no son for Tamar, then Onan is in line to receive the inheritance due to his, his older brother, the firstborn, which was twice the amount given to the second and thirdborn sons. So Onan's making a financial decision here. It's a self-centered decision. And he's using Tamar in the process of this. In verse 10, Onan dies, leaving Tamar, a two-time widow, still childless. Judah has one other son, Shelah. But Shelah isn't quite of marrying age, so Judah tells Tamar to return to her family until Shelah grows up, and then she can marry him. Again, as would have been the custom and requirement by Jewish law. This would have also been the way that Tamar could have been most protected and most cared for and the way that Judah's family would have behaved most honorably in this context. However, Judah has no intention of marrying off his third son to Tamar. And the reason is because he's begun to blame Tamar for his son's death. You see, Judah is victim-blaming. His sadness at the death of his sons, it's, it's blinded him to his son's wickedness. It's blinded him to his own failures and his own shortcomings as a father. It's easier for him to blame the foreign girl, the outsider for the pain in his life, than it is for him to see the, the ways that his actions and his dysfunction have perpetuated oppression. By sending Tamar away, Judah is denying Tamar what she is due, what she deserves by cultural right, and what she needs to flourish. And Judah's sons, they behave in the same self-centered and selfish way. You see, God is never pleased when people deny and withhold the resources that are needed for others to thrive. When people that are marked as God's people oppress, when they withhold, when they deny, when they frustrate the poor, when they neglect the foreigner and the widow, the Tamars of our day. Genesis 38, they tells us that what results in that is death. And I know it can be hard for us to read verses like Genesis 38 that says that the Lord put Onan to death because of his wickedness towards a widow, but the spiritual truth remains to oppress the widow to neglect the poor, to reject the stranger, God will not stand for those displays of injustice. And if we are to follow faithfully in the ways of our Lord, 
Our lives must be marked by care and compassion and acts of justice seeking on behalf of the widow and the foreigner and those living in poverty. Otherwise, our souls do in fact wither and our lives are far less than alive than what God intends. And there is always a death when the poor and widows and strangers are oppressed. Tamar later realizes that Judah is acting in the same selfish manner as his sons. She realizes that Judah will not allow her to marry Shelah. Judah is standing as a roadblock to her fulfillment of her duty to her dead husband. He's in the way of her honor and he's in the way of her security and her dignity is expressed in that day. Hers becomes a, a, a moral dilemma. Will she accept the fate that is given to her at the hands of men? Or will she seize upon her own agency and find a way forward? And Tamar chooses a fascinating strategy. It's hard for us to even comprehend, frankly, with our 21st century eyes. Tamar dresses as a temple prostitute. She sleeps with Judah, her father-in-law, who does not recognize her. She becomes pregnant. Judah learns of her pregnancy, and he believes that Tamar has become a prostitute, thus bringing shame on his family. This, of all things, is the thing that brings shame upon his family, not the wickedness of Judah or his sons. So in response, he, he orders Tamar to be killed in the most heinous of ways, thus revealing what's going on in his own heart. And at this point, it becomes clear that all that Tamar has done has been to secure what is duty-bound to her in the first place. She's fought to secure the rights that she was due as a wife from Judah's family. And it's exposed that Judah has behaved wretchedly, and he's shamed. And there's so much that's going on in this story culturally and relationally here, more than I can mind in these moments, but a few things to make note of. And, and, and let me say again that I'm indebted to theologian and author Carolyn Custis James for insights and scholarship on this. First, Tamar, she didn't, first off, let's say, she didn't pose as a, a prostitute because she wanted to, and neither was she doing this because she was some temptress as some preachers make her out to be. And neither was she doing this as, as just simple payback to her father-in-law who had lied to her and withheld from her. But rather notably, she is, she is compelled by, by honor to act. It was out of a sense of justice, of justice seeking that she acts, out of a sense of rightness and an ache to right or wrong. Up to this point, Tamar has accepted, uh, the passive, uh, has accepted the passive role that patriarchy expected of her. She was taken as a wife in the past to a second husband and then sit home to wait for a third. Now, however, Tamar commands the action. Verse 14 in the Hebrew text, it's simply a series of action words that describe what Tamar is doing. She took off her widow's clothes. She covered herself with a veil. She disguised herself. She sat down at the entrance. She saw Shelah and Judah. She becomes a woman of action and determination. And what's most remarkable about this, by the way, is Tamar's confidence that Judah will actually fall for her charade. It's a damning indictment of Judah's character and further insight to the wretched sort of man that Judah has become. Judah's drunk, he's foolish, and he doesn't recognize his own daughter-in-law, an indication of how little she mattered to him in the first place. 
Judah sleeps with Tamar, and they go their separate ways. But Judah has left his seal and his staff with her. Artifacts that serve as ancient forms of identification. He, he leaves those things with Tamar. Now, three months pass, and Judah learns that Tamar is pregnant. Rumor comes that she is, as the scriptures say in verse 24, she is guilty of prostitution, and as a result, she is now pregnant. And Judah's response is a brutal one. He says, bring her out and have her burned to death. Actually, in the Hebrew text, it's more cold and callous than that. It's just two words. It says, take, burn. Take her out and burn her. His response is a vengeful one. Burning was only reserved for the most heinous of crimes, and this isn't that. His response gives us insight into how he's viewed Tamar all along. It's the ongoing reason that he sought to oppress Tamar from the beginning. He's still blaming Tamar for the pain in his life, and he needs to justify that, that it's all her fault. He's still looking to hide the failures of his sons and his failure as a father, hoping that if he can, be rid, that if he can rid himself of this foreigner, then all will be right in the world. Of course, it will not. As they're taking Tamar out, she sends a message to Judah sending along his seal and his cord, his own identification, the, the very marks of, of who he is. And she says, the owner of these is whose child I carry. When Tamar pulls out Judah's items, she has one word for him. She says, recognize? You recognize? And she's not just saying, do you recognize this staff or these clothes? Do you recognize who you are? Do you recognize who you've become? Do you recognize what you're doing? Can you now recognize your depravity and the depth of your baseless hatred? Can you recognize your hypocrisy? This is the, the climax of the story is Tamar saying to her oppressor, do you recognize who you've become? Tamar is avenged and she's restored and Judah is awakened to his depths of his depravity by the very one he sought to deprive. Judah responds in verse 26. In that IV that we read, it says, she is more righteous than I. But it's, but it's just not a clear translation, actually. Most scholars would agree that, that a clearer translation is, she is righteous, not I. She is righteous, I am not. Righteous becomes the defining word for Tamar. Not widow, not prostitute, not any other word, but it is righteous. In Hebrew, it's the word sadak, which is also the word for just. It is a, it is a judicial word. Judah is saying that she is just. She has justice on her side, not mine. A story would conclude with Tamar giving birth to two twin sons whose, name, whose names mean brightness and breakthrough. Brightness, breaking through. Tamar would be celebrated and honored as the righteous and just one throughout Scripture. In the story of Ruth, 
which we'll hear later in this series, Ruth and Boaz, they're being blessed by a priest, and the priest says, may your family be like that of Perez, be like that of, of Breakthrough, whom Tamar bore to Judah. David, King David and his son Absalom, they would both name their daughters Tamar in honor of the woman who is righteous and just. And of course, Matthew names Tamar in his royal genealogy of Jesus. But what does all this have to do with Christmas? How does this connect to Advent? In Advent, we anticipate the arrival of the one who would usher in our rescue. The one who would know us better than we could possibly know ourselves. In Jesus, we find the one who says to us, recognize. Recognize me and recognize who you are and who you've become and recognize who you can be. Just as Tamar acted not on her own behalf, but on behalf of her dead husband's family and for a family line that she was fighting to save, a family line that would ultimately lead to Jesus, so too does Jesus act not on his own behalf, but on behalf of the human family that was bent on seeing his destruction only to see his righteousness breaking through on our behalf. Just as Tamar was the agent of Judah's transformation, so too is Jesus the agent of our transformation, his life in us by grace through faith. It was Tamar's grace. It was, it was her justice that fueled Judah's change from the hardened band with murder in his heart, a man who trafficked his brother, a man bent on exploiting women and carrying out honor killings. Even such a man was no match for the grace of God. By God's grace, neither are we. We do well to hear Tamar pointing us towards the hope that we all have in Jesus. She is a true foremother to us all. And it is right for us to live as a people, as an Advent people, anticipating the arrival of the one in whom all our hope hangs. Let me pray for us. Spirit, we, I pray that you'd be speaking to us, Spirit, that you would be saying something to us about what it is in our lives that you want us to, to recognize. God, that you would be, that you'd be awakening us to our need for for liberation from the patterns that, w that we've said yes to, the, the broken cadences of our lives that are leading to our own disintegration and dysfunction. God, that we would see your um, arresting of those. God, that would be, that would be a right honoring of, of Tamar's message to us, God. Not the only one for sure. God, I pray that we would come to a place of 
of hearing the invitation extended to us. Extended to us from Tamar, Jesus, from the spirits. That you would have us And we would just, we would just come to you with whatever brokenness that we have. The spirit that we'd find our, our healing there. We'd find our righteousness there. We'd find our justice there. God, for those that, for whom the story of Tamar just feels really, really personal. Spirit, I pray that you would that you would minister, that you would well that those friends would that they would have a sense of your presence with them, that they would have a sense of, of you seeing them and experiences of oppression and violation, God. We just have a sense that as you as our Heavenly Father, that, that you acknowledge and that you heal and that you restore and that you just that you embrace these, these children as your children here. God, that whatever it is that, that the Judas of the world have done to, to oppress and break and to hurt and harm friends in the room, God, by your spirit and by your care and by your community that, that you would heal. There would be a rightful healing touch in the place of so many broken ones. Spirit, maybe that's the thing that we've been adventing for, that we've been anticipating and longing for the arrival of is a healing. Spirit of God, minister in whatever ways that, that we need this, this morning, this Advent season.